On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Good variety on the front pages of the Sunday papers, I think, today. Um, the Sunday Times has some promotion about the latest edition of its rich list and the number of Irish people that are there. But the, the main story on the Sunday Times is that Fianna Fáil believes that political opponents are using bot accounts bought from so-called click farms to try and discredit its members and to create a false impression that the party is buying social media influence. Um, if you are a Twitter user, you might have seen this week that a video from Stephen Donnelly about the National Maternity Hospital was retweeted by around 300 uh, bot or unmanned accounts, uh, all of which apparently were based in Turkey. Um, a review of further tweets by senior members of the party, uh, including one from Micheál Martin about the maternity hospital issue, has led Twitter to deactivate more than 660 accounts um, this has been something of a feature of uh, tweets from Fianna Fáil members about the National Maternity Hospital that they've all been seized upon um, by Twitter bots um, some people would think that it is Fianna Fáil itself trying to artificially promote uh, those tweets uh, what was particularly remarkable uh, and this is accredited to a spokesperson for Stephen Donnelly um, they've told us the Sunday Times today that it was noteworthy that the journalist who first noticed the fake accounts Rob O'Hanrahan from Virgin Media News um, had a similar experience of having his tweets heavily retweeted by bot accounts as well I think Rob's tweet drawing attention to this apparently uh, unusual bot activity wasn't itself retweeted over a thousand times by bot accounts before it was removed but anyway long story short Fianna Fáil says it is not responsible for buying that sort of support and it believes actually that some other outside body is trying to do this in an effort to discredit some of its own online material Uh, make of that what you will Um, also a very curious story in the front page of the Sunday Times that private investigators have raised concerns that proposed legislation to ban stalking could interfere with their work and lead to criminal complaints against private detectives, uh, which I'm sure is a, the law of unintended consequences that nobody saw coming. Um, the Irish Mail on Sunday, front page story, is actually quite alarming. Um, we are told that firearms and improvised explosives passed undetected through Dublin Airport's security screening during a major safety audit. Um, seven prohibited devices, including guns, improvised explosive devices and components of explosive devices managed to pass through scanners and security staff during the audit which took place at the airport last month and there are now fears that extra security measures may be imposed on the country's main airport which could cause further delays and disruption to passengers. Uh, The Mail on Sunday has learned that the European Authority has contacted the Irish Aviation Authority and Dublin Airport about making a return assessment to ensure that what has been done to ensure that these breaches are not repeated and then the European Authority will issue a report about its own follow-up findings but there could be something called an Article 15 sanction placed on Dublin Airport which would mean um, extra security measures being required on aircraft leaving Dublin Airport and on planes arriving at European destinations from the Irish capital all of which could mean that your summer tourism uh, already uh, marred by large queues at the airport could potentially um, get a little bit bigger as well of course as well the security consequences uh, of all of that as well uh, the Sunday Independent lead story this morning is written by uh, someone who we have in studio and we'll talk about it in more detail a little bit later this hour but we're told that the government has been secretly warned that the arrival of tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees into towns and cities across the country poses a risk to social cohesion and integration particularly among deprived communities ministers have also been told that the current humanitarian response could become unsustainable in the coming weeks with the risk that those displaced by the war in Ukraine may not be able to secure accommodation education or income support or access employment. Stark details of a cross-government risk analysis were given to Cabinet in recent days with a memo identifying a number of top-level risks both for refugees arriving in the state and the wider population. That's the front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, And finally for now, the front page of the Business Post 
Uh, a clause in the new 450 million euro state subsidy plan for developers. Uh, this is the Cree Conaghy scheme, about which you might have heard uh, a lot this week. Um, it will allow people who purchase apartments through the scheme to pocket as much as 80% of any profit from a quick resale if they choose to flip the property. Uh, the Cree Conaghy scheme will subsidise the cost of building apartments by providing developers with subsidies of between 25,000 and 144,000. 144 grand of a subsidy. Uh, to builders uh, to uh, develop properties per unit. Um, it has been created by the government to help stimulate the construction of apartments. New details of the scheme released to developers by the housing agency and seen by the Business Post have revealed that purchasers cannot be stopped from quickly reselling the homes and keeping the vast bulk of any profit made with only a slow, small clawback of the subsidy required if properties are resold. So, for example, if you have an apartment which cost 500000 to build, uh, and which was uh, sold to a purchaser at a 400,000 market price after a subsidy of 100 grand from the Creekona fund. So if that property is then sold for 450,000 within 5 years, that would be an 11% markup of what was originally paid. The original purchaser gets to keep 40,000 of the 50,000 and the state would only claw back 10% uh, of the difference. Now that of course is fair proportion, but it just seems that a lot of people would think that you'd be expecting the state if it's subsidizing the purchase or the the building um to sub- to get much more of a a clawback. Uh, and fine for now also in the front page of the business post the government is scrambling to find alternative ways to pay for electricity emergency power uh, generators which would avoid the cost being passed on to homes and businesses. One source said the prospect of consumers businesses being increased to pay for emergency measures uh, to prevent winter blackouts uh, would be politically explosive and that work is already underway to prevent it. Uh, the Business Post, as you might remember, has been reporting already this month um, that the state is having to double the amount of uh, planned uh, generators being imported next year to prevent blackouts. Now they just have to figure out a way to do that without passing the costs on to consumers. Uh, that is your tour of the front page of the Sunday newspapers. We are joined in studio by Gina London, who's an international communication strategist and trainer, uh, former correspondent with CNN, and by Hugh O'Connell, uh, political correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independent, uh, who is the author of that piece on the front page of the Sindo, uh, also the author of uh, Pandemonium, which is currently the country's best-selling non-fiction title. So congratulations to you, Hugh. Um, the, um, Thanks, Gavin. That wasn't you uh, cheering. <laughs> I must stress. Uh, no, it was me. Self-praise <laughs> is no praise at all. Um, that story in the front page of the Business Post about the Cree Conaha uh, scheme and that people might be able to hang on to um, a lot of the profit if they do make a profit in a short period of time. Um, I don't want to, to over-egg it or to suggest that people will, will now knowingly exploit that, but it seems, Gina, like the sort of thing where if you point out that you can buy an apartment for less than it costs to build and then you can flip it on in a short period and keep the difference, it sort of seems like an invitation for people to do precisely that. Oh, On one hand, yes, and on the other hand, let's get people in apartments. Let's get let's get developers building apartments. So the, I, since I moved to Ireland almost six, seven years ago now, it is astounding to me the lack of supply and the demand goes up and up and up and up. And I think there's a lot of it that goes around the idea that everybody wants a house, mm. not an apartment. And the whole idea of apartments is an anathema to some people, and I that's interesting concept culturally to me but let's get enough supply so that they're not paying three thousand euros a month for an apartment i think once you go through the process which is an arduous one as i continue to be a renter and not a buy and not a buyer myself it's an arduous one to own a home leave it as an apartment or as a house or whatever the dwelling it is it's a very complicated process here in this country and i think Anything that can help incentivize, as you see, there's actually, a, a, I think, a very nice article over in the uh, the Times from the Irish Times from Cliff Taylor talking about let's get a comprehensive plan in place about this complex problem 
as the housing shortage and the prices go up about how to fix it, how to get, okay, don't incentivize developers because we all know it led to a bubble and a crash. And Mm -hmm. let's find some way. I think one of the first things that, that Cliff Taylor points out, and I actually certainly agree, is let's reduce the amount of time from a building permit application to getting it actually gone through. I saw in one of the articles there, there was a discussion about how long it takes. There's a, in the Cindo on on page 10, delays, 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 Mm -hmm. talking about how it's 106 weeks right now, they say, builders are saying, from the time they put in an application to they get that permission. And by contrast, the last place I lived... Just just to get permission. That's that's over two years before you get planning permission. outrageous. And it's just... I mean, this is what is quoted here yeah. by the writer. So that's, that's not even including the, the time to actually like develop. Build it to, once you get the permission. And and I think about if if that's true and maybe anecdotal. I, I but when I lived in Denver, the last place I lived in the United States, and I actually worked in land use as, as a government affairs um, professional. And in that city, now, but comparable really mm. in size to Dublin, for example, it's. Four weeks is the max, really. And now that things are delayed because of pandemic and things that they're saying the planning permission for a residential housing, zoned housing property is seven whole weeks. So you contrast that to 106. Mm. That is time. That is money. And that's delays. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Um, Hugh, going back to the, the, the front page piece, because there is much more on housing and we'll discuss uh, more of it in some detail in just a minute. But again, just about the um, the Creek Owner scheme and the fact that it has now been publicly advertised I guess by the business post that this is something you can do um, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of the the cash for ash arrangement where if it was advertised that this is basically a way where somebody who's got the capital can actually just buy apartments on the cheap for, for cheaper than they cost to actually build and then flip them and keep a lot of the money that you're you're giving people an open invitation to do just that and yeah, it's not going to house I mean, the people you think it it's, might it's a controversial scheme anyway because it is uh, it is on the face of it seems to be incentivizing developers. Um, I mean, Kino Callahan is a social Democrats TD and housing spokesperson is quoted as describing it as a bonanza for developers. And I think one of the issues that we have uh, at the moment is one of the kind of difficult things to talk about is the fact that, like, in order to get houses built, we need developers to build them, and that requires. T- you know, some degree of incentivization, mm. which is uncomfortable because we saw what incentivization did in the run-up to the financial crisis. It created a property bubble um, and the country went bankrupt. Um, uh, the, and the result of that, obviously, was that there was very little um, residential property construction for the best part of a decade. And that has led us to the situation that we're in now with a, with a, with a crisis that's very acute. That means that nearly 10,000 people are classified as homeless, um, but very many more are, are couch surfing, are living at home with their parents, can't get on the property ladder, uh, paying exorbitant rents that prevent them from getting on the property ladder. Um, so it's it's difficult, and it requires difficult conversations. Wherein you know you're going to have to find ways in which to get homes built. That doesn't always, uh, I suppose, uh, ally with sort of politically uh, expedient policies mm. or, or politically palatable policies. You know, is there not a, a and, and it's not politically palatable to no. say we're going to give money to developers to incentivize them to build. No, but if, if they're not going to build enough, then I suppose you have to do something to try and, and and get shovels in the ground, or at least get planning applications in in city council offices, even if it does take 106 weeks for it to get through. <laughs> I kind of wonder though, is, is there a danger that some of these schemes can end up working? 
in concert with each other. So like we all remember the, the controversy a couple of uh, a year or two ago when the government uh, introduced its its higher stamp duty for mm. the the mass purchase yeah. of properties by by so called uh, cuckoo funds, but exempted apartments in Dublin from it. So you could yeah. actually buy an infinite number of apartments and not pay any higher stamp duty than yeah. 1% they already do. Is there a danger that you could end up having apartments which are, sub- the construction of which is subsidised through schemes like this mm-hmm. and then having foreign property vehicles buying them all up yeah. at what is ostensibly below market value Yes, and then immediately flipping them and then... Yeah, of course there is, yeah. 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 Doesn't I mean, seem like a great, <laughs> an optimal solution to the housing no, crisis. No, it doesn't seem like an optimal solution to the housing crisis but I suppose, you know, Gina's made, made an interesting point there about apartments and apartments in this country and people wanting to live in apartments and this obsession with home ownership and this obsession with people having a home. I suppose, you know... Ultimately, what the government is trying to do, and I'm not defending the government here, but what I think they're trying to do is just trying to get as much supply into the market as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so is that, um, you know, that ultimately will drive down house prices. And there's a lot of kind of commentary in the last couple of weeks about this idea that we may have hit the peak in terms of house prices and that they're not going to, they're either not going to rise by as much as they have over recent years in the coming years, or they're going to start going down. And part of the reason for that is perhaps because there's more supply coming on stream. But like, you know, as I said, it's the way to solve this crisis is going to involve some decisions which are politically unpalatable, mm. uh, which do involve incentivizing uh, people like developers who are not uh, obviously viewed with very uh, much uh, positivity mm. by an awful lot of voters. Uh, in a moment of absent-mindedness, I did forget when I was hypothesizing about the state uh, funding apartments, which are then going to be bought by investors and flipped for a small profit. Uh, I neglected to mention that on page 10 of the Sunday Independent, uh, there's an example of that already happening uh, because three quarters of the apartments developed in the state scheme for small and medium-sized developers never came to market and were sold to investment funds. Uh, this is a piece by Wayne O'Connor mm. on page 10 of the Sindo. Um, Home Building Finance Ireland, uh, which was ostensibly set up to fund uh, developments that, that retail banks wouldn't want to have any interest in doing has been accused of acting outside its remit because figures show that a majority of the homes delivered with its support have been in developments with 100 units or more and such schemes are typically out of reach of the developers it is tasked with supporting so therefore it's been it's being accused now of, of helping larger scale developers rather than smaller ones but again that is state money which is being used to subsidise um, the, the construction of properties and then or at least lending uh, to fund the, the um, construction of properties which are then being sold to, to Goku funds um, Sorry, Jean, you want to come in? Well, there? yeah, I was just going to say along along the side of what you're saying when you're talking about incentivizing developers and the way that they can work around things, and rather than scuppering the entire incentivization plan, there's an interest. As we're hearing from the example in the in the Sindo article that you mentioned by Wayne O'Connor, there's also this idea of add some add if there's incentivization. Add an obligation, add some regulation around it that makes it ring fenced so that those types of things are avoided as opposed to going back to the drawing board again and again and again. Mm. And I thought it was interesting that they're in, and I think in the uh, same article back over in the Irish Times by Cliff Taylor, he's talking about how the housing minister, Darrell O'Brien, is talking about let's increase the amount of for- affordable housing that developers must allocate from 10% to 20%. And that could be the same for multifamily units in addition to single-family dwellings. If you put in riders that are going to help people, developers, keep within that way, there might be a way to get that supply up and not have it go over into the ways that you mm. described. Um, a, sorry, there's another bunch of stories in the papers today about vacant homes. And in particular, there's a piece in the Business Post about how the Department of Finance didn't want to commit to the vacant home tax or the proposed vacant yeah. home tax. And this is a long-running thing where there does seem to be kind of an institutional resistance within the Department of Finance to 
basically uh, incentivizing people to stop sitting on vacant homes mm. uh, to get them. Didn't uh, revenue commissioners say that there was actually far fewer vacant homes that they tried to do a bit of an Yeah, I think so. Yeah, fewer. I mean, you see, there's not great data on this and they're collecting it now as part of the, the local property tax. But I mean, it is the case that there are thousands of vacant homes across the country. And there is a possibility to get them, uh, I, I suppose, upgraded or to get them filled, to put people in them. And for some reason, the Department of Finance is, is, is kind of resisting this. I mean, I've, I've written about this before. Um, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the Department of Finance has at various points kind of said that, you know, this won't solve the housing crisis. But it's one of the tools mm. th- that I would argue that could be used to try and, and you know, get people off the homeless list, homelessness yeah. list and so on, you know. Um, you'd, but you'd, think, you'd think all hands to the pump. Like, well, exactly. Even if it has yeah. a very small so, impact. I mean, there seems to be anything, you know, a preference for some policies and not a preference for others, whereas a, a, perhaps a greater mix of policies would be the best yeah. approach here. And certainly, you know, it has to be asked why there's an, you know, you, you walk through the streets of Dublin, there are an awful lot of vacant properties, there are an awful lot of vacant homes or vacant houses, um, and you have to wonder why nothing has been done about that mm. for several years now. Uh, that piece in the Business Post uh, does uh, observe that there were changes made to the introduction by Dara O'Brien when he was writing the Housing for All strategy, because in the draft he had promised to tackle, quote, the unacceptably high levels of vacancy in this country. But that language was taken out of the final document because the Department of Finance said that there was no evidence of unacceptably high levels of vacancy in this country, that they just don't believe that there are as many uh, completely vacant or unused homes uh, as as is suggested by some other sources. And um, what's also remarkable, uh, Gina, I don't know whether you had a chance to look at this, is that on page two of the Mail on Sunday, we are told that there is a state body which is charged with the revamp of 100,000 derelict or vacant homes. I guess they can be either or underused one way or another. And it has a total staff complement of... One person. <laughs> there is one person responsible for bringing 100,000 properties back into the mix. Well, there's an unenviable task, isn't there? I mean, when you think about what what um, was just being said about the idea that we need to integrate the policies, integrate the people. How can you have the finance department questioning what the housing department is doing? Aren't they all on the same plan to try to increase the numbers and get things moving moving forward. So the same thing, if you're going to identify vacant homes as a problem, and then you're going to give one person the job of ta- tackling that, well, that's certainly a recipe for not solving the problem. Mm. So get these things integrated, get real support, make there be a real plan. Again, as the other writers in today's papers were saying, get this stuff moving in a way that is quick and trying to solve the complex problem the, that I mean, it is. There's, there's a statistic in that story as well about UnPost's geodirectory database, which shows there are more than 100,000 100, vacant and derelict homes across the country. Mm. Um, but the Department of Finance just obviously doesn't believe that they are, in fact, vacant. No, but I mean, I think even the Department would acknowledge that there are vacant <laughs> yes, and derelict define, properties. Yes, define how long. Yeah, it's just, exactly it's just not unacceptable. Like there's a certain level, but yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. Define what's acceptable. Yeah. A uh, couple of texts and tweets. Um, somebody has texted in to say these ideas are just tyranny by the wealthy. Uh, somebody else says that we are worried about indigenous flippers paying 10% corporate capital gains tax. Not a word on foreign vulture and cuckoo funds paying zero tax on both their rent and the eventual sales flip. Uh, I did allude you to did, that, but, uh, but to be fair, I, I kind of take the point that it's it's under addressed. And Paul texts in with an interesting point to say that an example of the madness in planning, this is uh, to your point, Gina, we approached our local planning department to have a pre-planning meeting in late September 2021 to see if we could build four houses on our site September 2021 so that's eight months ago we are still waiting for the meeting yeah no, see, that's just unacceptable I don't care about pandemic issues or whatever kind of backlogs this is the type of one quick observation in terms of the over government of this country that is so small but has seemingly 
a zillion people that are in some sort of a civil servant role and mm. yet can't seem to integrate and get things streamlined. Absolutely astounding and to if, me. And if it's 106 weeks from planning <laughs> application to planning approval, and Paul has been waiting eight months for a pre-planning uh, meeting so that then he can then put in planning permission, yeah, uh, thanks, it doesn't bode too well. Um, and by the way, and I won't get too much into it because uh, we're depressing enough people at this point, but on page 25 <laughs> of the Sunday Independent, Connor Skeen, uh, not everyone's favourite columnist, but always worth a read, um, observes that because there is actually proportionately few uh, properties in Ireland that are mortgaged because so many people have passed down properties through generations or they've got their mortgages paid off. Yeah. In fact, he believes that there is good reason to think that with the pent-up demand, uh, Irish house prices are going to continue to rise uh, for at least the next two years, albeit at a slower pace than what they currently are. So that's a uh, a cheery note for everyone who's caught in the rental trap. Uh, we're going to put a cork in it there, though, because there's much more to talk about, including a uh, huge front-page piece that the cabinet has been warned of social unrest over refugees. We'll hear more about that, and we'll hear from Colm O'Gorman in just a moment. 11.27 here on the record. Um, still a few texts and tweets coming in about the housing crisis. Um, somebody says that a 33% tax might be a reason for people not to sell property, which is a reasonable point. Mm. Uh, and somebody else says that the notion that REITs have an unfair tax advantage is a fallacy. A private landlord pays income tax on the rental income. A shareholder in a REIT pays income tax on the dividend from their REIT. If the REIT paid corporation tax, it would be a form of double taxation, uh, which is a reasonable point and that's the the argument that the government would itself in advance but I think if you have a person as a small landlord competing with a professional uh, bespoke created real estate vehicle that's maybe where some of the, the imbalance comes but the point is taken um, I'm still joined in studio by Gina London International Communication Strategist former CNN correspondent and by Hugh O'Connell political correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independent Hugh you've written that front page story today in the Sunday Independent about a secret cabinet memo warning of some social unrest over refugees tell us more yeah, um, this is the results of a cross-department analysis carried out by the government in recent weeks by civil servants, basically identifying what risks arising uh, are, arise out of the arrival of um, over 30,000 Ukrainian refugees at this point and potentially many thousands more uh, in the coming weeks. And really, it's it, it's sort of two-pronged in that it's identifying the, the risk to uh, the refugees themselves arri- arriving here in terms of uh, being able to access accommodation, education, uh, income supports, access to employment, and so on. Uh, but also, you know, it, it points out some of the risks that are here for the, for the population, the existing population here, I suppose, just in terms of a greater demand for public services and the impact on the tourism industry as a result mm. of, I think, over 17,000 persons who've been displaced as a result of the war being uh, uh, put in hotels or, or at least 17,000 rooms being booked out for the purposes of, of putting uh, arriving refugees in, into, into temporary accommodation. Um, but also, you know, more deprived communities, um, you know, feeling, I suppose, disenfranchised, and that's my word, and it's not in the report, but, the, but disenfranchised, I suppose, by the fact that um, tens of thousands of people have come in in recent months, and because of the EU's temporary directive, they get access to all of the welfare supports, uh, you know, medical care, education, and accommodation, and that that might create some disgruntlement uh, mm. amongst people in, in towns and villages across the country. This is a difficult topic to talk yeah. about because, you know, we have uh, we have a, an open door policy, uh, and rightly so, I suppose, because of the war in Ukraine, to bring in uh, as many people as want to come here uh, for the purposes of fleeing a, a, the awful invasion of their home country. Yeah. Their homes are being destroyed, but you know that may, at certain points, and has already, I think, anecdotally, but at very small, low level, created some resentment in some communities as to uh, you know the fact that some refugees coming in here are getting access to the sorts of supports that maybe some people already living here yeah. haven't been able to access but 
you know, Willie O'Dea, the veteran Fianna Fáil TD, who's been a TD for 40 years, has quoted in our paper today saying that he's finding a little bit of it down in, in Limerick, but very little, and that he's he's quite heartened by that, really, because it does show that, you know, we, we um, you know, we are a, a people, a uh, 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 a country that has, uh, I suppose, are we have been refugees in other countries over the years. So it's kind of embedded within our psyche to uh, to help people when they mm. come in here. And there's no truck with parties, political parties, who uh, espouse anti-immigrant views in this country. That successive elections have proven that. Uh, but nonetheless, look, this is this is an unprecedented influx of. Uh, thousands of people in a very short period and that's of course going to create difficulties mm. for the state and for some people within the country as well. Uh, well let's bring in uh, Colin O'Gorman, the uh, Director of Amnesty International Ireland on that. Uh, Colin good morning and thanks very much for taking our call this morning. Um, I suppose it is only really understandable or natural that there might be some fear of there being some resentments among other communities about the, the welcome that's being extended to Ukrainian refugees but um, I suppose were it ever thus? Well I mean First of all, we're not seeing any particular evidence, and uh, I mean, Dory makes clear there's there's and Willie O'Dea heard a few mumblings, but not very much beyond all of that. We're not seeing evidence of resentment, but I do think what we are seeing evidence of burnout, actually, uh, um, particularly amongst communities and hosts to welcome uh, um, and support Ukrainian refugees on arrival. Colin, I tell you what, sorry to interrupt you, but that there's a little bit of dropout in and out of your line, so what we might do is we might just let you go and we're going to call you back in just a couple of seconds and see if we can get you on a slightly more um, stable line. Um, in the meantime, um, Gina, I put the same point to you, really, that I suppose it is only understandable given all of the, the drains and resources and the challenges that there are and the price of housing that we were just talking about in the first half hour of the programme, that it is um, only natural that in some quarters there might be some concern that people who are desperately trying to make ends meet uh, who are already in, embedded in this society would feel that others are having more than their fair share of resources put their way. Yeah, I actually think that, that Hugh's reporting on, on this observation by the government and, and this potential consideration is actually a really positive thing in the sense that there's that awareness and there's that that what-if contingency plan thoughtfulness going on around how do we potentially deal with this. And as Hugh already said, and I think I, observationally from the United States war immigration talk is so rancorous immediately when that word happens there's a flame to think about how so far this country here in Ireland has really been one of the leading countries in taking in the mm. the refugees from from Ukraine throughout Europe and that's actually really something that's to be commended at the same time to be prepared for now we're in month three of the war what's going to continue how is that going to go is it does it as the duration potentially continues mm. and these refugees still and we get into the winter and there's the needs continue sure. and that sort yeah. of thing but um, it's a good question Colin McGowan I think is back on the line Colin hopefully the line is a little bit more uh, stable this time uh, you were saying that you, you were somewhat heartened by Willie O'Dea saying that it was only a small level that he had seen so far yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and thanks, Gavin. Yeah, and we, we haven't seen any evidence at all that the significant or any kind of real levels of resentment building across communities. But what absolutely is happening is people are getting worn out and a little bit burnt out because the right supports and structures and systems haven't been put in place to assist hosts and communities in, in receiving refugees. And I say this, by the way, as somebody who, uh, after the Afghan crisis happened, supported a large number of Ukrainian refugees who came to Ireland, many of them in community hosting situations. And we as a family hosted refugees ourselves for a number of months uh, um, here for several months here as well. Um, what we've seen, I think, is an example of extraordinary social cohesion when Ireland stepped up and stepped stepped forward. And it would be tragic and, frankly, uh, um, just uh, a little bit perverse if at the end of all of this, because hosts and host communities weren't getting the right tools, the right resources, the right supports 
to sustain all of this, we saw a breakdown in social cohesion because actually this kind of work, this kind of national effort led by communities can really enrich and deepen social cohesion rather than threaten it. And that would be terrible. So hosts and communities need supports. They need practical things like systems that they can apply. They need like a simple thing, like, for instance, if you're going to start to share your home with somebody that you don't know, uh, generosity and an open arms aren't enough. You need some structure. When they arrive, you need to be able to talk through and, and put together a home sharing agreement. How are you going to manage things like childcare, if and when that need arises, sharing a kitchen, bathroom, all of this, this very practical stuff. But none of those kinds of tools or resources or even basic trainings have been put in place for people. And, and, and that's one of the things that those of us who've been involved in community sponsorship for refugees over a number of years now are, are used to doing. And, and we've developed through a project I'm involved in called the Open Community, a big suite of tools and resources that can give exactly that to hosts and communities. The key thing here is to sustain the generosity of people who have stepped up and stepped forward. We know there's about 9,000 community hosts who are available, according to the latest figures in the Red Cross. That means that community, if people are supported properly in the, in the medium to longer term, community can support something between 20 and 25,000 refugees, which is a huge number. Mm. The state can't do this without community, but it has to make sure that the right tools and resources are in place in order to sustain this. But does generosity cut both ways? Because, for example, and Hugh observes this in his own piece today in the Sunday Independent, that it's only a few days since the government signed off on that €400 per month recognition payment for households that are committing to to accommodating refugees. And and that is an, an act of generosity because a lot of them didn't need the money and they signed up before having the idea of some financial reward. But there hadn't ever been any similar financial reward for people taking in anyone else from from long term homelessness. And people may see them as being comparable situations where the state is doing its best to accommodate one set and not the other. You know, I mean, one first of all, I always remember Peter McVeary is fantastic on this issue. Whenever anybody raises the issue of people fleeing to this country seeking protection and homelessness, he says it's not a case of either or. We have to and must and can do both. I actually think that one of the things we should be doing as we work our way through this particular crisis is ask and question and demand why exactly the same crisis approach, crisis response, you know, real radical uh, uh, approach hasn't been adopted to solving homelessness. We can absolutely do that. But it's not a case of either or. We, We have to do both. We have to respond to both of those things. And you're quite right, Gavin. When people offer to to open their homes to people seeing war, they're not doing it on the basis that they might get 400 euros a month. That's welcome when it becomes available and when it's possible. But for most people, it's generosity, it's humanity. It's, it's just a simple matter of being human and being decent that motivates people to do that. What they need then are supports, resources on an ongoing basis to make sure that that's something that becomes sustainable for them. And that means helping hosts and communities to organise how they're going to approach this so that it is sustainable Mm. in the medium to longer term. Because like a hosting solution is not going to be for three months, not even possibly for six months. You really need to be thinking about, can you sustain this, you know, for a period of 12 months Mm. uh, um, at a minimum? And that can happen if people are given the right tools. Do you have some concern about um, some of the the, the pressure points that are approaching? Because now that we've uh, almost exhausted all of the hotel accommodation and we're now moving into other uh, mass accommodation centres um, the cabinet was told and again this is a huge piece that by early July some people could be waiting up to 27 days for hotel accommodation and 99 days for independent accommodation effectively meaning that those people could end up staying in, in camp style or dormitory style accommodation for the first month before they arrive would you have some c- concerns about the, the level of facilities that are available to them there or whether the state is meeting its obligations? 
I think, first of all, we need to recognise that this is a, a refugee crisis and people being housed temporarily in 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 uh, um, communal spaces is not unusual in a crisis like this. But if it can be avoided, it should be avoided. And I think the real challenge at the moment is we have 9,000 community hosts. We know, for instance, from the numbers arriving in other countries that e- each unit that arrives is about two to two and a half people. So we have 9,000 community hosts who have made it clear that they're ready to go, that they can do this. That's, as I said, between 20 and 25,000 people can be hosted by community if community are supported uh, are supported effectively and properly. That needs to be a significant part of our focus. Ireland cannot do this without the support of community, without the support of people in communities all across the country stepping up in an organised, structured way with the right supports. If we do that right, we can get this right. We need to bear in mind that as a country, we normally receive somewhere around about 700 refugees through our resettlement programme every year. Mm. We're talking about 33,000 people by the end of this month. That's massive. We can only do this and do this effectively if community are really engaged and really supported. And if we do that, we'll do it really well and we'll strengthen social cohesion rather than threaten it. Uh, Colin McGorman, Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland, thanks for joining us this morning. And again, thanks for for taking our, our, I guess, our two calls uh, this morning uh, on On The Record. (laughs) Very much appreciate your time. Um, Somebody called Northside Dub on Twitter says, four people on the show, yourself included, none of you are struggling for housing, stuck in generational homes with families. You have no idea of the resentment that's out there. It was bad enough with the economic migrants over the years. This person says, enough is enough. I don't think that uh, just because we might have slightly more comfortable personal circumstances that we're somehow blind to what's going on. It's not like we don't have friends or colleagues or relations or other people in, in our lives that are, you know, not caught up in all of this. It's not like I have plenty of people of my college age who are all considering emigrating because my mortgage is a grand a month cheaper than their rent for comparable houses. I, I don't think we're, we're blind to the impacts at all. Um, uh, hey, and like I said, I am I, I li- moved here six years ago, first to Cork, where the rent wasn't as nearly as expensive as where I live now. And, and I frankly... Love I love the the Twitter person there, but um, I can't afford to buy a house. It's with the amount of down payment in the system as it is right now. I rent, mm. and it's not cheap, and it's not easy. Do you have concern then that that makes your your long, long, long term uh, future here a little bit more precarious? If you at some point will be of a non working time in your life, and that you'll still have to I find? I cannot continue to rent the home that I'm in at the cost that it is in perpetuity. Because you're right, at some point I'll be on. A not a pension. Mm. I hope that I've created on my own because I'm self-employed with my own business. And so, yeah, the idea for me in the future, if I continue to stay in Ireland, and I am going through naturalized citizenship application now. Well, so, yay, I'm well, committed. But yeah, but the the future for me is moving out of Dublin, moving into a smaller. If I stay in Ireland, I can't afford the location I am, the size of home that I'm that I'm in, at the price that it is. No way. So it means relocating downsizing and that's that's the reality that's um it's, it's sobering thought to have to think it about is, it because in, I in, love in my later life when i po- love my neighbors and so i have actually well, even whatever about the, the, the roots that you've grown but that if, if if there's coming a time and this is a a reality for so many people in this country who will probably never be able to afford to to own their own homes that they will be looking at a time in their lives when the rent is still going to be as high as it is if not higher and their income is going to be far lower than it currently absolutely is absolutely right do then? absolutely right uh, on that point um, TJ has tweeted in uh, in relation to our previous conversation about vacant home tax and he points out that if the Department of Finance says that there are few vacant homes surely that makes it politically easier to bring in a vacant home tax absolutely 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> keep, 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 keep Makes the sense to me. There you go, Governor. Keep the silver bullet solutions coming. 53106 <laughs> is the number for your text on the record. NT is our hashtag. Uh, still much more to come in the pay per view with Gina and Hugh. And we're back after this. Still joined in studio to go through the Sunday papers by Hugh O'Connell and Gina London. Um, Hugh, just we were having a discussion there off air about the the question marks about the vacant home tax, and you, you've dug up something that you wrote uh, a little over a year ago, which which might maybe give some more of an insight as to some of the concerns around or the reasons why it hasn't ever been a vacant home tax. Yeah, it's a it's a note that was I wrote this story in September of last year. It's a note that was sent to one of the Oireachtas committees uh, by the Department of Finance, which stated that the tax could represent a distraction from the need to significantly accelerate the building of new house, social housing, affordable housing and the facilitation of private sector supply and it so, cites so it, an Indicon just I'll finish this point because it cites an Indicon report from 2018 that it commissioned into the vacant uh, site ta- property tax stated that while such a tax would likely s- to generate significant media and public attention and may be seen as part of an effective response to our housing problems they did not believe that it, this would be supported by the evidence in their report. So, so it would be a distraction from well, it seems to be so finance taxing something would be a distraction from level, housing doing something. Such as the low <laughs> level of vacant properties in the country, according to the Department of Finance, that this just wouldn't be worth it. Effectively, that's but, kind of my reading of it. But the, it's a, but their argument is that someone else, do, someone doing something, might distract someone else from doing something else, something bigger. Yeah, yeah. like like the, forget the multi pronged approach. Yeah, it's got to be one perfect mm, approach or none at all that's how you know that government is dominated by men because they just cannot multitask the, <laughs> the idea of like taxing one thing would mean that you are somehow debarred from doing something else mm. um, a lot of texts coming in to 53106 about the question marks of uh, people feeling disenfranchised by the extent of, of the generosity to Ukrainians um, somebody texts in um, this, this isn't named but I think it's worth reading anyway there may be a lot of patting each other on the back in the wine bars of Dublin, but in the pubs of the working class, there is a growing resentment, this person says, towards anyone who gets something extra. Last night, there was a guy in my local loudly telling those around him that the answer to homelessness was to get a Ryanair flight to Ukraine. I'm going to interrupt and say, you can't do that because there's a war, but all right, let's, yeah. let's let this person go on. Uh, to get a Ryanair flight to Ukraine and then claim to be a war refugee and ask to be housed in Ireland. He was talking rubbish, but a lot of people were nodding, uh, says that one texter. Uh, and somebody else says, there seems to be an entirely insular view of the housing crisis going on, as if Ireland is somehow divorced from the rest of the world. Uh, we're not special. How about the housing crisis in London, Toronto, New York, Sydney, Auckland, etc.? The government intervention into the market is clearly not going to solve this problem. That is from Kevin and Wicklow. Um, it is a fair point about being universal because I'm enough of a nerd to have watched the last leaders debate before the Australian election which took place yesterday and one of the things they were concerned about was the shortage of housing and the rising population of Australia and simply where they were going to house people so it is a a universal concern Um, it is uh, 11.48 there's a couple of other bits and pieces in the papers uh, a lot of them to do with Northern Ireland and relationships between the UK and the EU and the protocol and Simon Coveney's uh, sort of frenemy act uh, with Liz Truss. Um, Hugh, anything that jumped out for you? Um, it's on page two, I think, of the Sunday Times where uh, Coveney talks yeah. about trying to build bridges again. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the week has kind of been dominated by an awful lot of high rhetoric about um, the, uh, the, you know, the decision of the UK to kind of press ahead with plans to... Um, negate some elements of the protocol or in fact the entire protocol which uh, the EU and Ireland have been saying would be a breach of international law. It does seem like the UK are trying to slow play this. Um, I don't think anyone is any in, in any rush to resolve these issues. Mm. It doesn't strike me as, this, as if people are in any rush to resolve these issues. And you know, as I was saying to Gino Affair, if there's one thing I've learned about covering Brexit for the last six years, it's that... Um, things tend to drag on uh, people tend to say nasty things about each other 
And then in the end, they find some sort of solution that involves the Conservative Party backtracking on its previously stated position. Can, can they do that forever, though? Are, like, are they not getting yes. to the point where they, they've re- <laughs> that path is so well worn that they know they can't keep saying yeah, stuff? And then I, honestly, I, th- I think they can, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, where are we? We're in 2022 and 2019. Boris Johnson went to the country with his oven ready Brexit deal, uh, which um, is the deal that was hammered out in Wirral between, uh, largely the deal that was hammered out in Wirral between Leo Varadkar and, and Boris Johnson mm. the previous October. Um, they signed up to this. Uh, Brexit got done. Mm. Britain left the European Union and now they're kind of turning around and saying, well, look, it's having a very debilitating effect on east-west trade. Uh, it's causing huge problems for the importation of goods into Northern Ireland, certain goods you can't get in Northern Ireland. You know, and they're kind of saying, well, look, we're going to blow the whole thing up now because it's just not working. Whereas, more likely a solution can be found by making adjustments to the protocol that cut down on the amount of paperwork that streamline the east-west trade issues uh, and you know do not disincentivize or do not disin, uh, d- disadvantage uh, people living in Northern Ireland and, and make them unable mm. to access uh, certain products but and certain services. Do, do we, not, we get to a point, though. Sorry, Gina, go ahead. No, I was going to say, my favourite point, or my favourite part about, to build on what, what he was saying, my favourite part about that Sunday Times article is down d- deeper in, in the article when when there's some senior sources, I always love it when it's just a senior source mm. that's quoted. But I'm this sure is, the, the but, source is delighted to hear uh, themselves uh, described as senior. <laughs> I will not tell you who I am, but I'm a senior source. Mm. And the idea here, though, that I like this, it's a leverage tool. That the goods are being are being brought in from Britain to Northern Ireland and passed into to the Republic right now. But here's the, the line where you say, are the Brits trying to use a Northern Ireland, a Northern Ireland protocol as a Trojan horse to leverage their real concerns that they're trying to do as they continue to go with the EU and negotiate on Brexit issues like tax, VAT, and jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice? And I think that's really what's probably at play to Hugh's mm-hmm. point that we're leveraging it for something else. And don't forget, the U.S. even just this week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has joined the ongoing discussion from the U.S. saying, look, we are going to block any U.S.-British uh, yeah, trade, trade, deals, trade yeah. talk. To I mean, if, if, if you're not, if you're going to screw that up, that that later, so that's yeah. really that, and that, and that, and I believe the U.S. would do that. I think there's a I lot mean, there of was, pressure there. There from was some interesting the reporting US. from uh, Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times last weekend. Actually, I think it was about how. Um, you know, Downing Street isn't necessarily happy with the approach that Liz Truss and others have taken in, in kind of this sort of, uh, you know, playing hardball and playing talking tough and all this kind of stuff. And that actually, you know, that they they want to be a little bit more conciliatory in this. in this. And ultimately, you know, Boris Johnson was, just wants to find a solution, which is, I think, politically expedient. Mm. Um, I don't think, you know... the the reality is, is I don't, I don't think they care a huge amount about what happens in Northern Ireland. Um, obviously, they don't want to create a situation where mm. it becomes unstable and, and violent. Um, but, you know, whatever whatever solution can be found to, to find a way out of this, I think Boris Johnson would be very likely to sign up to in, mm. in short order. I think that, that is all we can deduce, really, from his, his record thus far in Downing Street over the last three years. Uh, Rob has texted 53106 to take me to task about my uh, misandric comments about the male-dominated government. He says that there's enough negativity directed at men already. Sorry to have um, upset you, Rob, this morning. Uh, and somebody else, who I won't name, uh, says that uh, I am being selectively blind because I'm trying to toe the line with government uh, while still trying to provide a public service and if I don't I'm going to get kicked out of Leinster House um, to get kicked out of Leinster House I would have to fall foul of the secretary of the Oireachtas Press Gallery and uh, I'm afraid that that's me so uh, <laughs> d- down here on God so to speak uh, a benign dictatorship benign dictatorship, dictatorship. nonetheless um, 
on the the protocol though, Hugh. Um, it strikes me that there there is a certain amount of this kind of resentful, you know, you break it, you bought it attitude of the mm. Irish government. They're saying, you know, hey UK, you signed up to this. So if you've got a problem with it now, then you know, lump it because you signed mm. up. If we are so concerned about the operation of Stormont and wanting to get an assembly or an executive back up and running, do we not have to recognise that if the protocol is the blockage, if the, the protocol is the issue, which is stopping that functioning, that the EU is as much a co-author of the protocol as the UK does and that therefore we have a responsibility to show some flexibility yeah, at, at, at our yeah. EU level. Yeah. But you don't see that being observed or acknowledged much. That we're saying, oh, it's up, up to the, the UK now to go away and find some fix. Like, we're co-authors. We need to find yeah. a fix, don't we? Well, I mean, I think some solutions were proposed last year, were they not? Some uh, some concessions that, that the EU side feels have, have been ignored. Um, and, like, that. I mean, that that's if that's the case, then, I you know, perhaps there needs to be a more honest and frank conversation about this. I mean, there is also a feeling, I think, that, you know, the Tonish that gave an interesting speech this week about we need to be have more detail around the... Uh, the circumstances under which a border poll could be called under the Good Friday Agreement, because the Good Friday Agreement says it's when the kind of the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland feels that it, it would be mm. uh, that there there is a, a groundswell of I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but effectively a groundswell of opinion towards a, a, a poll being held. Um, and Bradker, I thought in a somewhat ill-timed intervention, given everything that's going on right now, was kind of saying that we need to start having a conversation about what that would mean in practical terms, which is a very sort of uh, I think you know an approach that Michelle O'Neill and Mary Lou Macdonald would would quite 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 clearly align with, mm. um, but also I think has has had the effect perhaps of annoying quite a lot of unionists, which is probably not something you should be doing at this point in time. Notwithstanding the fact that it probably plays to the nationalist yeah. Republican base of some some yeah. Fine Gael uh, voters. You, you, could, you could argue, and I don't mean this glibly, that there's very little that a, a Dublin government could ever do that doesn't come across as being antagonistic to, to unionists uh, one way or another. That's the case, but nonetheless, perhaps that means that they should just shouldn't do it. Um, before we go, um, the Open Community uh, has been in touch. They offer some of the host supports that Colin McGorman was talking about, some of the, the supports that people might need if they're thinking about bringing Ukrainians in to offer some translated materials or a guide to how the Irish system works. You can get all of that at theopencommunity.ie. Uh, we are completely out of time, uh, so I'm going to have to let you go. My thanks to both of you for coming in this morning. Gina London, uh, international communication strategist and trainer and a former correspondent with CNN, and Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independent. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.